0: Okay, welcome everybody, this is The Contemplating Christian, and we are going through The Wonderful Works of God by Herman Bavinck, and this is his chapter on general revelation. I'll start off with a quote, this isn't actually from the book itself, but from another one of Bavinck's works, uh, from the Philosophy of Re- Revelation, and he says, The world itself rests on revelation. Revelation is the presupposition, the foundation, and the secret of all that exists in all its forms. So... Kind of a fancy sentence, but really he's just getting at that revelation undergirds everything. God's revelation of himself undergirds and is the foundation of everything that exists. And a pretty sweet picture of him. Yeah. All right. He's a great beard, man. <laughs> yep. Okay. So we're going to go through some general themes from the chapter itself and uh, going through kind of summarizing what Bobbing says in this chapter about general revelation. Mm-hmm. First. Right limitations of human knowledge. Yeah, limitations of human knowledge. So
1: this is just getting at the fact that we are limited in our mind, okay? And the reason we're going over this is because when God reveals himself, uh, we perceive it through our, our minds. So first thing, knowledge of created things. Uh, we're made to know creative thing, uh, created things. We have a an innate desire and curiosity for these things and to know them. Um, that is one special ability we were given. So when we talk about the image of God or Imago Dei, that's uh, one of the things that makes up the image of God. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, And then also we will never exhaust the study of the world. So it goes on infinitely and God created so much of it and so intricately that we can never actually fully understand everything. So when we're talking about general revelation here, Uh, Yes, we can pick out some elements and make arguments for God and everything like that, but we're never actually going to fully comprehend it. So our knowledge is limited. Mm -hmm. All right. And then we're also going to make this uh, point of knowledge of ourselves. First off, here. Yeah. Oh, here's a passage he's going to read quick.
0: Yeah. Well, what Bob actually says about the knowledge of our, the knowledge of created things that we have, he says, this ability, our knowledge of created things is limited in all kinds of ways and on every hand. As science penetrates deeper and deeper into the phenomena and approaches the essence of things, it sees the mysteries increase and itself hemmed in on all sides by the unknowable. There are not a few who are so deeply convinced of the limitations of human knowledge that they feel like saying, we do not know and we shall never know. So I think of something like the human cell, how the more we learn about it, the more mystery grows, the more we don't really understand it. And so that's just getting at that though we desire to know the things around us, we never really exhaust it on mm-hmm. yeah. the knowledge of ourselves.
1: Oh yes, knowledge of ourselves. So this is talking about our inner self, our soul, our emotions, rationality, will, everything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the reason we're hitting this is because when we're interacting with each other, the only way any of you can know my will, my rationality, my emotions, anything like that, is only if I reveal them to you, okay? So that's the inner self. but. Even then, our inner selves, so our soul and how all that works, it confounds us. So it, it's it's a mystery. We don't know everything about it. We don't know all about how it works. So none of us even have perfect knowledge of ourselves. We wouldn't say that. The only person or being that has perfect knowledge of himself is God, mm-hmm. all right? And <clears throat> that also connects to his uh, like God, because The only way we can know God, again, is if he reveals himself, which is going to be one of the biggest points we're making today, all right? And so when we're talking about knowledge of God, so yes, it comes from him, Mm -hmm. uh, only from him, always from him, all right? But this revelation presupposes personhood. So we're going to talk a little bit about deism and theism. Um, So it's pretty much this fact that God doesn't accidentally reveal himself, it's always Intentional, on purpose,
0: Um, yeah. yeah. Robin gets gets the point across that we have like an exterior man that you can all see. You can see what I look like on the exterior. But then there's our inner self, which is kind of our, our truer self, that you don't see. And that you only see to the extent that I reveal that to you, to a large degree. So he says, to a limited extent, man has the ability to conceal the inner side of his nature from others. He can so control his facial expression that not a muscle betrays what is going on inside him. Uh, he can employ language to hide his thoughts, and he can, in his actions, assume an attitude which is in conflict with what he is within. And even though we are dealing, even if we're dealing with a person of integrity who despises all such subtleties of deception, we must, in order to know him, depend very largely upon what he, on his own part, chooses to disclose. That's the point Samuel's making. And the point we're making is that g- God is not like that. God doesn't have like a, a fake self that he puts out to us. He is just simply his real self, who God is, mm-hmm. whereas we are kind of two. We have this external self that we present and then our inner self, which is often different, often worse, Yeah, <laughs> if we're being honest. But that's like the, the point that Bob making.
1: Yeah, and one of my favorite word studies in the New Testament is on the word mystery. So if we, if we look at the context and what um, idea surrounds the word mystery, so like, um, when Paul always talks about in his letters that God revealed the mystery of his will to us, or something like that, mystery literally means to keep your mouth shut. So, if you keep your mouth shut, you aren't telling anyone anything. You aren't revealing anything. So, that's, that's how it connects to this. So, the only reason we know about the mysteries
0: of God is from, one, general revelation, and two, special revelation. Right. So, and So, the knowledge of God is possible, therefore, only on the basis of a revelation from God's side. He has to act first to us. A knowledge of God is available to man only when and insofar as God freely chooses to reveal himself. Mm -hmm. So that is the point we're hammering on that slide.
1: And so that's all we have for limitations of human knowledge. Right.
0: All right. So
1: we got revelation from him, through him, and to him.
0: Does anybody Um, know what scripture that's from? So Romans 11 is where he gets that from, that all things are from him, to him, from him, through him, and to him are all things. Keep going.
1: All right, but uh, we're going to hit each one of these. So from him, again, it's just saying revelation comes from the personhood of God. So theism versus deism. There's this big point of if God was deistic or not personal. Uh, Every revelation, even through creation, would be by accident. So we would just accidentally know about God. Um, And because of this, actually, we get two unreasonable conclusions. One, we would either have to say there is no knowledge of God at all, uh, if if it was deistic, or um, if we accidentally found out about God, we would say God is actually dependent on man because God wouldn't know himself. And all knowledge of God would be dependent upon us knowing it. But as Christians, we would not say that. We would say God has perfect knowledge of himself. But in deism, that would not be possible. So that's why we have to say all revelation is from him. And he knows himself perfectly and reveals himself in whatever way he chooses. Okay? Now, the second point on this is through him. So the Father reveals through the Son and Spirit. Revelation is trinitarian okay so God reveals his knowledge and we talked about this last time how Jesus is the um, knowledge of God he reveals that Mm -hmm. through Jesus Christ and we are enlightened in our minds by the Holy Spirit so all three are at work it is trinitarian okay now um, we would say for the last one to him the goal of revelation creatures knowing and glorifying their Creator the goal of Revelation, kind of like how we were talking about how Calvin says the chief end of man is to, um, I think it says, like, know and enjoy him uh, until all eternity. Uh, and then we, the Westminster Confession also says something similar. But we would say the mid, high, and end point of Revelation is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. So, uh, we're given this just to glorify him. So, its end is not in us, it's in him, okay? It just. Pat, think of us kind of like a middleman. He reveals
0: himself to us to glorify him, okay? Yeah, and to just quote from what Bobing's is saying, he says, as a matter of fact, all the works of God, whether of word or deed, are constituent parts and elements of his one great comprehensive and always continuation, uh, continuing revelation of himself. The mm-hmm. creation, maintenance, and rule of all things, the calling and leading of Israel, the sending of Christ, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, The inscripturation of the word of God, the sustaining and propagation of the church, and the like, are altogether ways and forms by which a revelation of God comes to us. Each of them tells us something of God. In this sense, everything that is and everything that happens can and ought to lead us up to the knowledge of him whom we know is life eternal." Yeah. So just he puts it very well. And so there are three more points we'd like to make on this when it comes to
1: from him, through him, and to him. One is that when... We are actually revealed. We've talked about this before, but it's kind of like a prism. So um, if you have a beam of light and it hits a prism, it uh, has the array of all the colors. So kind of like that, God can reveal himself in a lot of different ways. Uh, Number two, we would say that with general revelation and the revelation we get, it is completely inferior to God's infinite and perfect knowledge of himself. Um, even though we still have knowledge. So we still have some knowledge, but it's inferior to God's knowledge. Mm. And then, um, actually, yeah, the last thing is this. According to uh, Romans 11.36 and also Proverbs 16.4, we want to make this point of angels understand more about God and have a better uh, revelation, kind of, but they, lo- they don't have the gospel. And so they long to look into the gospel, even though they know more. Right, So there's this special uh, thing about Jesus actually becoming human, saving us, and that entire gospel message that um, only only humans get to
0: experience right there. Right At the end of 1 Peter 1, it talks about how the angels long to look into the gospel that's been revealed to humankind. And so there's a, a sense in which we have more revelation, or just a different revelation of God, a different angle, because we know God as our redeemer uh, in a way that angels don't. And so mm-hmm. that's very, very neat. Okay, general and special revelation. This is this idea of the two books of nature, and our next couple chapters are gonna go more into this, more in detail. Uh, but general revelation is considered the book of nature. It's just the world around us, creation itself, uh, and is the usual course of events within nature. And so this highlights God's power, his wisdom, his goodness, his providence, his general care over all humanity. Uh, Psalm 105 says, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So this is this general revelation is known to all men. Uh, it is bestowed to all in what Bobbin would call common grace. So this idea in the Reformed tradition of common grace uh, is this grace that all people perceive and all people know just by being a human being perceiving the world, and it is seen in creation itself. And then we have, uh, as Christians, because of Jesus Christ and the way that we're enlightened by the Holy Spirit, we perceive creation all in a new way now. We perceive everything uh, in light of God and everything points back to him. Whereas before it was kind of dull to us, we had a general knowledge of the creator. Now as Christians, we see everything around us and it points us back to worship of God. So you can think of the C.S. Lewis quote where he says, um, I believe Christianity as the sun has risen because by it I see all else around me. It is the light that enlightens everything around me. All else is seen in light of Christ now because we're Christians. And then special revelation is this, uh, the book of scripture. And this is what we would usually call the, the unusual means. So things like miracles and prophecy, these special events in history in which God kind of steps in and does things that are unusual in the sense of the ordinary course of nature. So like parting the Red Sea, or raising Christ from the dead, these miracles, and then obviously the prophetic, like punctuated prophetic words that he gives to the prophets, and then the church, of course. So miracles and prophecy. Uh, and these highlight God's holiness, his righteousness, him as the redeemer, um, more of the eternal aspect of things, judgment, uh, heaven and hell, uh, compassion and grace. These are highlighted in God's special revelation to us. And we only, uh, those who live under the gospel, those who obey the gospel, um, those who have received forgiveness and new life are those who see special revelation and that's to whom it is given. And so special revelation you can co- consider as uh the word of truth, and that's truth incarnate as Jesus himself, and then the scriptures that we have. So Jesus and the scriptures are God's special revelation. And the point I wanna make is that they're two intimately connected things. They are supposed to mutually benefit each other and connect to each other. They're not like opposing. So the book of nature and the book of scripture don't contradict. They don't um, go against each other in any way. The way that Bobbing puts it, it is common grace which makes special grace possible. It prepares the way for it and later supports it. And special grace in its turn leads common grace up to its own level and puts it into its service. Both revelations finally have as their purpose the preservation of the human race, the first by sustaining it and the second by redeeming it. And both in this way serve the end of glorifying all of God's excellencies. So they both work together uh, mutually to bring us to God. Mm -hmm. That's the point to make there.
1: Um, Now, we have this chart right here, just because we thought it was helpful. Uh, Norman Geisler, he has a systematic theology as well. It's a couple volumes, but he puts this chart in here to connect general revelation and special revelation, specifically when it comes to our language. So, we would say general revelation reveals God as creator. Special revelation, on the uh, other hand, reveals God as Redeemer. Uh, General revelation gives norms for society. Uh, Special revelation gives norms for the church. General revelation gives means of condemnation. And special revelation gives means of salvation. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, general revelation is found in nature. Special revelation is found in Scripture. Mm -hmm. And that's what we would say. Um, So... Just with the language we use, and so like when we say God as a specific title, we could actually attribute that to a specific revelation, depending on what exactly we're talking about when it comes to God. Yep. So we just thought this was helpful. Again, it's from Norman Geisler's Systematic Theology, who is also a brilliant person. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah. Right? Yep. I'm in control of the computer.
1: Okay, now we have this uh, huge topic of general revelation in the biblical narrative and we, uh, we might not spend a ton of time on this because actually the next chapter goes through this uh, a bunch more. So, the next chapter is us kind of finishing up general revelation. So, think of this chapter as just one part of general revelation. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we, uh, we're going to talk about this. First, Romans 1 and Acts 17 both of these are proof texts for this um, so let me quick read them. So Romans 1:19 and 20 says this for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been completely perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So that's why the chart that we just went over reveals God as creator so his power and divine nature are shown, but he's not seen as redeemer. And then also it says they're without excuse. So that's the means of condemnation right there. Um, Acts 17, 26 through 27 says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him yet he is actually not far from each one of us so it's specifically that last verse right there um, they should seek god feel their way towards him and he's again not far from us as in he's he's plain. we can we can find him um but like in other passages it says we we don't we ignore that we uh push it away and uh, a famous verse fools say in the heart he doesn't exist right so um this, we're actually going to read a little bit from Bavinck himself. So this is what he says. "Uh, Creation itself taught by scripture demonstrates the revelation of God in nature. For creation is itself an act of revelation, the beginning and first principle of all later revelation. If the world had eternally stood alone or had eternally stood alongside of God, it could not have been a revelation of him. In the second instance, such a world would eternally have been an impediment to God and his revelation of himself. But whoever together with the scriptures holds to the creation of the world confesses thereby that God reveals himself in the whole of that world. Every work testifies of its maker, the more so in proportion to the extent that it can be in a peculiar sense be called the product of its maker. So um, that right there gives us something really really cool it's the fact that creation is the foundation of all revelation so special revelation wouldn't have happened if god didn't create pretty commonsensical, um yeah if he didn't create if he didn't create us he couldn't reveal to us um but also it would say the world can't be eternal, which is kind of another topic, but some people try and argue that the world is eternal. This is one reason that Christians should hold that it's not eternal and that there was a beginning, but Mm -hmm. that's just really cool. Now, uh, let's keep going on here. So, creation. One, it's a free and intentional act of God. So, it's something he purposed, he actually did. um, And, oh yeah, it kind of grounds off. I kind of already talked about that. Whoops, my bad. It's okay. Um, Then... What we're going to do is actually there's one more paragraph that I would like to uh, point out because he makes this point that if we kind of deny God as creator, it leads to a bunch of bad consequences. So ideas have consequences; good ones have good consequences; bad ideas have bad ones. So this is uh, this is what he said it will lead to. Mm-hmm. Um, He said because the world in an absolute sense is the work of God and owes both its nature and its being at the beginning and ever after to its maker every creature manifests something of God's excellences and perfections so everything shows God in some way Mm -hmm. so soon as the revelation of God in nature is denied or is for example limited only to the heart or the feeling of man the danger threatens that the creation of God will be unacknowledged that nature will be said to be ruled by another power than that which rules in the human heart, and that in this way, whether openly or covertly, polytheism will again be introduced into human thought. So the big thing right here is that if we do deny God as creator, it leads to polytheism, uh, and we can take that in two senses. One, just us creating our own gods and idols in our heart if we don't acknowledge God as the creator. Or two, it would lead to something like we would actually attribute uh, aspects of nature to different gods, so think of like the different Uh, mythologies or uh, all the polytheistic religions, they have gods for like God of the rivers or God of the fields or something like that. Uh, And so it'll lead to a polytheism in that sense. So we always try and make these gods and that that would happen if we
0: deny God as creator. Right, Um, and then his last point is just kind of tracing throughout the biblical story, the ways in which God has revealed himself to mankind uh, generally. So he talks about uh, the creation obviously in the garden He talks about uh, making from the tribe of, or from Abraham and his family, the tribe of Israel kind of starts through him. He talks about, uh, before that, Noah and the flood, and then the Tower of Babel, which confuses the language of men, uh, and then disperses them over the face of the earth. And then we have Abraham and the different tribes that get allotted from that, and just how God reveals himself through all of that. And then eventually how this leads to a kingdom, and then it leads to ultimately the fulfillment of all of that as the church with Jesus as its head, Um, and the New Jerusalem. So that is just kind of tracing God's work through history. And then a Norman Geisler quote. Yeah,
1: so the reason we're putting this in is, uh, one, because he just brings up an interesting point. We're about to get into the arguments for the existence of God, because that's what Herman Bavinck does. But uh, Norman Geisler here actually explains how exactly that works or why it's possible that we can actually know these things, okay? So it's specifically the medium through which revelation is possible. So when we're talking about revelation, it's like how do we know it or through what medium is it being communicated? Okay, so this is what he says. In order for an infinite mind to communicate with finite minds, certain things must be possible. To begin, there must be a uh, common principle of reason that both possess. Mm -hmm. Since it can be shown that the basic laws of reason are based in the nature of God, they are common both to God and finite rational creatures. Thus, a necessary condition for divine revelation has been fulfilled. So, it's this: laws of logic and reason are grounded in God, but they were also uh, they were also bestowed upon us, or we were given access to them, so that we're able to know God. So, when we're talking about revelation, the only reason we can know God is because we have this principle in common with Him. Okay. Uh, if that wasn't fulfilled, there would be no way we could know God. He would be uh, he would be the God of deism, as in cold and distant, and we would have no knowledge of him. Right. Unless it was by accident, but right. yeah.
0: Okay, so Babang has a section where he talks about natural theology, which we have talked about a lot in our talks. You can go back and look at uh, on our YouTube channel and whatnot, and we've got a lot of different talks on arguments for God's existence. It's a you know, a hobby of ours that we are very interested in and he spends a little bit of time addressing it and goes over the common arguments so you guys have probably heard of these before especially if you've uh, been around us a little bit but our universe you could break it up in this way which i think is neat you can argue from our universe itself our universe is dependent and limited meaning it's bound by space and time it's contingent it could have been otherwise it didn't have to exist the way it does and this is the basis for what's called the cosmological argument then you can can argue from the order of nature and the purpose um, in nature for the teleological argument, which is a design argument for God. And then you can argue from humans ourselves. Humans have an innate sense of God, which he boils down to. That's how he boils down the ontological argument, which is interesting, that we have an innate sense of God. And then we also have a moral sense. So we're moral creatures. We hold to a moral law that's above us, that stands above us and this is the basics for the moral argument. And so he just really briefly goes through these. Uh, Bobbing himself isn't super hot on natural theology. He's what you would call a presuppositional apologist, um, which doesn't really take natural theology as seriously, but he sees a value in it still. And so I think it's all of those things have their place and they all have their purpose. It's not a either or, but a both and, and a which when. So what, when do you need to challenge somebody's presuppositions? When do you need to present positive evidences for Christianity? Mm-hmm. And then lastly, he talks about how just looking at history, we sh- we see a universality of religion among all peoples. So everybody worships something all throughout human history. That's significant. We should take that into account. And then there's a, there's a directness in the history of man. The mm-hmm. whole history of man is going towards something. And he says that we see God's kind of stamps of himself all throughout history. And then lastly yes
1: arguments should appeal to both the head and the heart so um this is actually a really really cool point but we are going to read a small section from bovink and then i'm gonna explain it a little bit so this is what he says the arguments for the existence of god named above are not directed to man as a logically uh ratiocinative creature merely but to a man as a rational and moral being their appeal is not solely to his analytical and uh, ratiocinative mind but also to his heart and feeling his reason and conscience Mm -hmm. as they have their worth strengthening the faith and establishing the bond of connection between the revelation of god outside of man and the revelation in man so remember we have the two books book of nature book of scripture we have general revelation for the book of nature we have special revelation for the book of scripture now a lot of times we just break those apart and we're just like, oh, um, everyone can have general revelation and then we just cut it off and then we say, then there's special revelation with the scriptures and we don't connect them at all. Mm-hmm. Um, what this is actually saying, it's saying there is actually a connection between general revelation in nature and special revelation, our hearts and scripture. And it's basically connecting God outside of us and God inside of us, okay? so. When we're going through these arguments uh, and observing things in nature, we are connecting with God outside of us. And then uh, it later then strengthens and supports special revelation, which affects our hearts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, which is just really cool to think about. Wonderful. Yeah.
0: OK, so this is not from the book itself, uh, but I thought it would be really interesting to bring up. And I call this a, a bit of a case study, and it's something that Bovink does that it's a lesson that we should learn from. And it might seem very, very abstract and academic, but I think it actually applies to each of us particularly. And so, orthodox yet modern. This is an example. That gentleman on the left there, uh, painting of him, his name is Friedrich Schleiermacher. And nobody knows who that is, fancy, funny German name. Um, But he is basically the father of Protestant liberalism. So, there is a massive movement in the history of the church in which to catch up with, quote unquote, the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution that was happening, the church had to change a lot of its doctrines, had to say the Bible is actually not very authoritative, uh, miracles probably didn't, didn't actually happen, things like that. And the whole church had to had to catch up to science. And so, he is one of the um, kind of the, the figureheads of that movement of Protestant liberalism. And if you see, like mainline churches, like Presbyterians and, and Methodists and Lutherans, those churches in America today, most of them, like most of the, uh, of the body within, that, w- within those denominations are very hollowed out and very much liberalized, don't take the authority of scripture very seriously. A lot of this comes from not just this one guy in particular, but he is one of the founders of what would eventually become Protestant liberalism. Okay? And so Bavink is aware of this guy and knows a lot about him and knows that everybody around him is very influenced by this man. Okay, And so what he does is not simply just call this guy a heretic throughout his whole book, although he does disagree with basically his whole method, but he takes the language that he uses in his work and appropriates it into his own work uh, to support Orthodox Christianity. And he's using the language of the day that people actually know and are familiar with to get, a, get his points across. Okay? So I hope that this makes some sort of application to us at some point. In my Mm. head, it sounded really good. Yeah. So uh, the guy on the left, he has this idea of he starts his entire theological work with this idea of he starts with man. And he says, uh, man has that everybody, every man has this feeling of dependence. We know that we're not necessary. We didn't have to exist. And we have this feeling of absolute dependence on a holy other, which is God. And he says, all human beings throughout all of human history have had this sense, and this is what has caused all men to be religious in some way, in some capacity. Okay, So that basic idea, Herman Boving says, OK, I don't agree with a lot of what you say, but that idea, there's something in it that's right, and biblical, and something that most Christians have said throughout history anyway. And so he takes the language of, of the guy who's extremely influential, he takes his language, and he uses it all throughout his work. And he just appropriates it and says, "Yeah, that's the one good idea here, and I'm going to take it and use it." And so, he, and then this is what we've been talking about the last few weeks: of our sense of divinity, or the sense of the divine within us that all men have. That just what John Calvin talks about throughout Christian history. It's been a big idea. And this sense of divinity that we have is characterized by a sense of dependency. So we have a sense of like helplessness as human beings, and we're dependent on something other than us. And relationality. There's an actual sense of like personhood. We have this inherent sense that we're relating to a person, that we're dependent on God. And so Bavinck tries to, uh, it's a good case study of interacting with the philosophy of the day and knowing what people are actually thinking and saying in your current culture and using that and appropriating it into your own life to be able to speak better to the culture around you. So it's an interesting case study of that. And that's why Bavinck is orthodox in that he's continuing historic Christianity throughout all time. He doesn't want to change anything. He doesn't want to undermine the authority of scripture. But he's modern in the sense of he knows what's going on in his culture around him. And he knows how to respond to it very well. So that's why he's good for us to read today. Yeah, yeah. one more thing on Herman
1: Bavinck. We've said it before, but I want to hit it again. And it's why and kind of how he wrote this. And mm-hmm. it was for his culture back in, uh, like, I think it was like 150 years ago. Um, But basically, his culture was rushed, Uh, very, very uh, run by the clock. Time is kind of controlling everything. Everyone is constantly having filled schedules, and uh, they don't really have time for God or don't really search for God. And so, uh, again, the reason we picked this book, The Wonderful Works of God, is because it addresses that stuff, and it's trying to, uh, I guess, rekindle or invigorate people to strive after God in a rushed Culture, you know, mm-hmm. because that's that's what our culture is like today mm-hmm. still, and that's why there are, in in scholarship there's been like a resurgence in Herman Bovink because he he was living in the same type of culture we live in today, even though we're just more technologically advanced. Right. All right. So so
0: that's why we think it's such an important book, and that's why we're going through it. Right. He lives in a culture that is too busy for God doesn't want to study anything deep about God, church attendance is very bad and low, and science science has supposedly disproven God. Yeah. We live in a very similar culture to what he lived in. Yeah. Alrighty.
1: Yeah, okay, so our application. uh, We have three things. First thing is seeing God everywhere, in both the book of nature and the book of scripture. So, one reason we're doing this whole general revelation thing is so, in everything we do, we can be like, oh, I saw God through that, or I enjoyed God through that, or uh, maybe you can even make it evangelism opportunities, or um, it it could be seen in any respect. And again, our next chapter is going to hit that a lot more because it's the value of general revelation. So why is it valuable? Why is it important? What does it do for us exactly? And then also we have this other idea of pillar of faith. We've brought it up a bunch. But when when we talk about general revelation in this book of nature, it supports our Faith. And my favorite example is C.S. Lewis from A Grief Observed, um, and basically what he writes is this. Uh, so when his wife dies, he writes that uh, he knows that God is good. He knows it rationally, and he understands that God is good and is in control of everything and loves him, but at the same time, he's like, it doesn't feel that way. It's really hard to believe that at the moment. and. The reason we say it's a pillar of faith because, I mean, think of how hard that situation would be if you didn't have reasons to believe God was good, or you didn't have reasons to believe that um, he was in control or actually loved you. Um, So that would then be C.S. Lewis writing, I don't know that God is good, and it doesn't feel that way. That's a much more dangerous situation. Um, So that's why I would say it's a pillar of faith. right.
0: And then lastly is this Okay, another fancy word just is contextualization. And this just means uh, speaking the gospel and preaching the message of salvation in language that people can actually understand. So if you're going to a like a foreign tribe, there are ways in which you would share the gospel and would not share the gospel that would be more and less helpful to them. The message wouldn't change, but the language you use might be different. Like one illustration of a farmer with sowing, like sowing a seed, if they have no concept of that, that's not the most helpful illustration to use. So that's just what we mean by that. Another example today would be, um, let's say you're in the medieval period and you have this issue of like, okay, your, your life around you is the bu- the bubonic plague, and like a tyrannical king over you. Most of us don't really have any connection to that. That's not really relevant to us today. But something like today, uh, what would be, what the needs of the people around us today? Young people today are are searching for like a sense of belonging, a sense of meaning, and identity. Things like that. Those are things. Christianity can speak to all of those things, but it's just the awareness of how can we speak the message of the gospel in the language of the day, like Herman Bobbink does. He takes the language of the day very well and then puts Orthodox theology into it and uh, speaks the gospel into that language for the culture around him. So that's all I mean by that. I hope that can be applicable to you guys. Mm. But yeah, bear with us. We're still trying to get like how, how to work with the book, exactly how much to go exactly from the book versus just our own thoughts, yeah, and where it's kind of a work in progress, but yeah, but that's it for today.
1: Yeah, that's all. That's all we got. We do have a prayer though. Right. Um, it is really cool. So uh, it, it's actually a prayer from Anselm of Canterbury, a really mm-hmm. famous, uh, really famous monk. So he basically kind of went went over this idea that uh, only fools say in their hearts that God doesn't exist. So this prayer kind of thanks God not only for being able to know Him through that, but also for Uh, illuminating us divinely through scripture and special revelation. And so that's, that's his prayer that he has. It's really short. It's like two sentences, but we're gonna, we're gonna pray. I thank thee, gracious Lord, and I thank thee because what I formerly believed by thy bounty, I now so understand by thine illumination that if I were unwilling to believe that thou dost exist, I should not be able to, uh, not be able not to understand this to be true. Amen. Amen.